Hi everyone, I'm Kyle Bechet, and this is the AAF Exchange, a podcast from the American Action Forum, where experts provide clear, data-driven insights into today's economic and domestic policy issues. Welcome, and thank you for tuning in. Earlier this month, the nation's pipeline security made news following a cyber attack that forced a brief shutdown of the Colonial Pipeline and a gas shortage in the Southeast. On this episode of the AF Exchange, AF's Director of Energy Policy, Evelina Chopla, joins us to discuss her latest insight on the issue. Evelina, thanks for joining us. Sure. Excited to be here. Since this is your first podcast with us, I'll have to welcome you on and congratulations on being your first one. Yeah, I'm expecting to be an immediate digital star after this. <laughs> Let's find out. Could you start by walking us through what happened with the Colonial Pipeline? Sure. Well, I think the most important thing to know initially is that in the U.S., we have an expansive system of interstate pipelines, and they really allow fuels like gasoline, commodities like oil to travel all across the country in a pretty efficient manner. So you can send oil to a refinery in Texas, get gasoline and ship it all the way up to New York. And that's actually what the colonial system looks like. So the colonial pipeline runs from Houston, Texas, uh, through the southeast and all the way up north to uh, Linden, New Jersey, which is essentially part of the Port of New York. And for about a week, they were shut down. Their system on May 7th was the subject of a ransomware attack. Essentially, what that means is that a foreign group who took the part of their system hostage, you know, wanted money in return for giving back control of the system. The group did not take control of the operational part of the pipeline. They didn't want to stop fuel. They took control of the sort of more informational services part of the company. So think sort of like billing or accounting. And as a result, the pipeline had to be shut down. And of course, uh, lots of folks in the Southeast uh, weren't able to get gas at the tank. Yeah, I remember like the the news stories from all this being like, you know, you saw the long car lines just to wait in uh, in line to get gas. And many places had the sold out signs put right over the, the pumps, which like what was the economic impact of all this? So I felt the impact personally. I happened to be traveling to Charleston in the time that this happened. And while I was there, you know, I landed at the airport, uh, go to get a cab or an Uber. And what we find is there, there aren't any available and you have to wait, you know, 30, 45 minutes for a car to show up. Same thing when we landed in DCA, when we got back here to DC. And, you know, that's that in itself is a little bit eerie. Uh, you know, the airport's usually a busy place, lots of cars, no shortage of cabs. So it's definitely uh, something that we all felt just in the day. The Colonial Pipeline serves 45% of the East Coast's gasoline, which is a substantial amount. The true uh, impact here was that about 16,000 gas stations went unserved. So that's a massive number of gas stations. And as a result, local authorities, of course, told folks to skip the trip to the grocery store, you know, skip the errands that you were hoping to do. And of course, you know, not drive for Uber, not drive for Lyft, don't burn that gas, save it. So this really had impacts that well went well beyond just the, the you know, gas station industry and, and well into things like retail and, and commerce in general. Yeah, I really didn't even think about the whole Uber and Lyft thing, but I definitely saw a surge in prices over the last couple of weeks when I was trying to, you know, just do basic things like go to the grocery store. I didn't even think about that part of the economic impact story. But this cyber attack obviously revealed vulnerabilities in protecting our infrastructure, not just with the pipeline here. Could you give us an idea of how common ransomware attacks are? Sure. So actually, this attack wasn't novel at all. Critical infrastructure in the U.S. Uh, since 2013 has been subject to about 600 attacks. 
that, that's quite a lot. And it really spans across the sort of gamut of what you could consider critical infrastructure, everything from the IT systems at police departments, um, municipal water distribution, really anything that would sort of make the, the wheels of the U.S. turn on a daily basis um, has been subject to these ransomware attacks. This attack wasn't novel in the sense that it was, you know, focused on the energy sector, other uh, energy sector uh, infrastructure has been attacked in the past. And I think inevitably these attacks will continue as more and more of our, our world is on the Internet. And as technology progresses, we'll constantly have this sort of back and forth between good and bad actors on the Internet. Yeah, yeah. Now, and now, of course, we're moving into, you know, the, how we're going to respond and clean up those vulnerabilities. So, you know, in response to this attack, we've seen Congress reintroduce the pipeline and LNG facility cybersecurity preparedness act, another long name from Congress. And earlier this week, the Biden administration also announced that it will take action. You've written about Congress's bill, so let's start there. Although this is a bipartisan bill, you noted you have some concerns about the bill's potential effectiveness in addressing the issues that are really at hand here, which is, of course, cybersecurity standards. Could you explain the current cybersecurity standards for pipelines? Sure. So in general, there was no lack of response to this. We had a few bills coming out of Energy and Commerce Committee. We had a few bills coming out of uh, Homeland Security Committee. Of course, the administration through the TSA has responded. Uh, Biden issued more broadly an executive order on energy infrastructure, cybersecurity. So everyone seems to want to get in the game here. The bill that you mentioned in particular it really tries to address um, a few things. And one of those being creating an agency or rather a program within the agency at DOE. And essentially what we have is several programs that already exist. So within uh, the TSA, for example, um, within uh, the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure uh, Security Agency, um, and even at FERC, you have all of these different agencies already at play in pipeline security. So we're essentially, you know, through this bill introducing yet another program, yet another agency. On top of that, the bill seeks to uh, create technical tools, as they're called, and uh, applications or software programs that pipeline companies can use on a voluntary basis. And I think tasking a government agency with creating programming is bold. You know, the government is definitely not uh, the most technologically advanced organization. They're sort of, I think, typically playing catch up. On top of that, this bill's language is pretty vague. So what are technical tools? What kind of uh, software applications? Does the agency really have to produce them themselves or are they simply going to source them from, you know, outside contractors? How will they make them voluntarily available? Typically, software applications are purchased through a, a subscription service. So, you know, there's just leaves a lot of questions unanswered. It also, again, doesn't address that we already have all of these guidelines through all these other agencies to address these issues. Similarly, it asks that DOE create sort of demonstration pilot projects with the uh, stakeholders or, or the pipeline companies. And those companies have already been approached uh, to voluntarily participate in programming with CISA. So, you know, this bill seems both sort of duplicative of existing programming and, and at the same time proposing things that I think are sort of outside of the, the government's uh, bailiwick, if you will. Yeah. So, I mean, it seems like one of the biggest issues in all of this, based off of what you wrote in your insight and what you just mentioned before, is the duplication of, of all of these, you know, standards and all these agencies now that are going to be involved in that. Can you speak a little bit more to, to your concerns there and maybe how that might be an area of concern going forward? 
Sure. I think the the largest concern uh, in my mind is identifying who would really have jurisdiction over this. You know, uh, the the problem with with sort of creating all of these agencies is that you know it's kind of unclear who's supposed to be responding to what. A company, you know, regardless of whether it's a pipeline company or some other sort of critical infrastructure, of course, you know, reaches out to all the relevant government agencies when there is an incident, and you know, hopefully there is some level of strategic. Uh, alignment there, and you know there there is a way to move forward and respond to the incident. With all of these overlapping uh, sort of jurisdictional issues, you have to wonder who would be responding. Um, why is DOE responding now? Seemingly TSA should have been responding in the past. The bill goes on to say that there is no change to existing law as far as jurisdiction of of agency goes. So you know you have to wonder. What does that mean in terms of the role of DOE? What what niche are they supposed to be filling here that these other agencies haven't already filled? And to what extent will that just confuse pipeline operators? Mm-hmm. One of the biggest concerns that you know you also wrote about is that what it lacks in the bill, you know, the lack of cybersecurity standards. While it does create you know these new government tools that you know duplicate what the private sector's technology is already there, could you walk us through your concerns there? Sure. So. The Transportation Security Administration, TSA, has issued guidelines in the past for pipeline security. And those guidelines essentially were voluntary. They really served as a means of alerting industry to sort of best practices as far as both physical and cybersecurity goes. And they really outline things like you know, how to how to prepare um, your IT systems, identifying which part of your systems is truly critical and, and what you should be doing to defend it. And I think this, these guidelines give us a sense of what will probably be in that directive, which you know, will essentially take what was voluntary guidelines and really put some, some teeth on it. Beyond that, I think you know, this, this bill really fails to acknowledge that these guidelines have already existed. It does simply say that existing jurisdiction for pipeline guidelines and regulations and rules is unaffected. So essentially it inserts the DOE into this sort of existing framework of a series of other agencies. Uh, it's, it leaves questions up in the air as to who is really responsible for what, why is DOE getting involved, and really could potentially just create additional confusion around an issue um, that's already sort of um, ambiguous in the sense that a lot of these guidelines, again, are voluntary. Yeah, I can imagine from you know the private sector's perspective, you know, not knowing which agency to to be paying attention to, that can be add an additional layer of confusion on top of a situation you don't want a lot of confusion in, especially when it has such impacts on the economy and other security implications as well. So, you know, you mentioned the administration announced this week that it'll put out a security directive requiring companies to report cyber incidences in the federal government. It also said it will follow up with a more robust set of mandatory rules for how pipeline companies must safeguard their systems against cyber attacks and what they should do if they are hacked. How will these measures impact the debate over pipeline security? I mean, how will Congress react to these new these new regulations? So I think something to keep in mind is that the pipeline sector, of course, is, uh, you know, trying to do something very specific. They need to operate pipelines and move commodities. But that doesn't mean that they, you know, sort of aren't using a lot of the infrastructure that 
companies typically use, right? They have corporate offices where they need to use communication tools, email, uh, they need cloud storage, like most other organizations now. Of course, on top of that, they have some other more specific applications like tools to help them manage their operating engineering equipment, uh, tools to help them operate, you know, the more financial side of the business, uh, billing, accounting for how much commodity is being moved and for which customer, how much uh, they should be charged for that. So there are some, of course, specialty software applications that they're using, but all that goes to say that they're already relying on a series of of private vendors, uh, companies out there who build software for these specific reasons. And and this software is essentially you know maintained by software developers. They're always looking for holes in their in their code. They're always bug fixing and providing other clients with the the latest version of the software. Um, so you know in in a way, trying to regulate this is like trying to regulate uh, this constantly evolving sort of machine. It's in the hands of the private sector. These are folks who you know have specialized in this. And trying to create government regulations to sit on top of that now seems difficult in the sense that, you know, with things innovating, things changing constantly, how long will these uh, regulations be worthwhile? To what extent will they constrain pipeline sector from perhaps employing novel technologies that don't fit in with the regulations framework? So, you know, you, you could have perhaps the reverse effect by instituting regulations that are really, um, you know, intending to secure us and leaving us unsecured by forcing us to use sort of data technology. Hmm. Um, so in that sense, I think the the role of the private sector here and the role of these companies in understanding their own systems is is really important to understand. Interesting. So my next question was, uh, where, where do we go from here? But maybe the better question is, where should we go from here with either, you know, Congress's bill or the administration's plan, remedy the problem, should we leave it up to the private industry to, to figure this out? Or is there, you know, is the best course somewhere in the middle of those, those two options? Well, I think the, the thing to focus on here is responsiveness. So these incidents are, again, uh, sort of inevitable, um, whether it be pipelines, or auto distribution systems, we're going to be subject to attacks. So what we really should be focusing on is responsiveness. How much have we planned to respond to these incidents should they occur? And I think what you know the pipeline sector could do and, and maybe hasn't so much from what we saw with the Colonial Pipeline is coordinate more within industry, build uh, relationships, and try to determine how it is that we'll approach these scenarios should they come up again in the future. I think a good example is actually in a sort of parallel industry in the in the power sector is uh, what utilities do to respond to things like hurricanes, tornadoes, when a lot of their uh, distribution equipment is destroyed. They not only send in their folks, of course, to fix it, but they have agreements with neighboring utilities and utilities from neighboring states, regions that weren't impacted by whatever the natural disaster is, send in their folks and, and they work together and they rebuild the system. But they build these sort of redundancies, you know, as far as workforce goes, as far as resources go, so that, you know, one area that's suffering can quickly recover by, by sort of pooling resources. I think this is a great example of, of the sort of mindset that we could use for more of these critical infrastructure issues. You know, planning ahead really is, is what industry should be doing. And I think this incident has made it very aware, made them very aware that this is, uh, you know, not something that they can brush under the rug. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's something that we'll have to watch because, like you said, the economic impacts of this entire thing are 
are real and hopefully Congress and the administration and the private industry can continue to work together to, to make sure that this kind of thing is, uh, is limited, if you will. Yeah, absolutely. Hopefully uh, we don't have any of these issues cropping up anytime soon. <laughs> and I will also assume that you'll continue to watch this and we'll talk to you later on about it. So thanks for joining us. Yeah, thank you. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. Tune back in for our next episode, where our experts will provide clear, data-driven insights into today's economic and domestic issues. I'd also encourage you to check out any of the links in our show notes, and also follow us on social media to learn more about AAF. Don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play.